Very little is said about John the Baptist. But though little is said about him, there's great lessons to be learned from his character, from his life. And he was, by the definition I gave earlier, a super man, a super Christian that stood above others of his time. Good evening, everyone. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, and I guess the verse now too. Matthew 11, 11. But we'll read the verse later. Now, I'm sure everyone here has heard of the famous uh, comic book superhero, Superman. I'm pretty sure everybody here has heard of him. And to many, especially in the Western, in the Western world, Superman is the textbook definition of what a hero should be. He was a great son, great husband, great father. He has a high sense of justice. He's extremely compassionate, sacrificial, selfless, and he protects the world from risks. He protects the world from danger, whether it be a mugger or an alien from another civilization. Superman protects Earth. And in most iterations, the Man of Steel is known as the symbol of justice and hope. That's how great he is. Whatever trouble may come, they know that Superman will be able to take care of it. The comic book character has been so popular that his comic books have sold over 600 million copies and is the number one best-selling comic book series of all time. Now, I don't think it will be number one for long because the number two is Japan's very best One Piece, 490 million sold, so I'm pretty sure it will take over Superman soon enough. But anyways, in the Western world, Superman is the most popular hero. These days, whenever we meet an incredible individual, we call them superhuman to point out the fact that they are people who have much greater strength, much greater ability, much greater intellect than an average person. Now in the Bible, we seem to have a superman as well. Now Jesus is greater than any superman, so I don't, I'm not talking about Jesus. But in your mind, think for a second Who might fit this criteria of a superman in Scripture? Now think for a second. A superman. Time's up. There were probably names that immediately came to our minds. The first one, I actually heard this just now, was Samson. Samson, though he was morally not that great, he was a strong guy, supernaturally strong. And he did a lot of things that we can't do today because he had the spirit behind him. Maybe some people thought of King David, his fight with Goliath. Maybe some thought of Moses or Elijah, Old Testament heroes. Or maybe some New Testament heroes like the Apostle Peter. And probably the most common answer that we thought of was the Apostle Paul. But none of these men were the answer that I was looking for. Now, Pastor Devin already showed the verse up here. In Matthew 11.11, we see the answer. We'll just read that first line out loud together. Matthew eleven eleven, Just the first line, or the first two, I guess. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now the Superman that I am referring to is none other than John the Baptist. Now to say someone is greater than anybody else that came before him is a tall statement to make. If I were to say that this individual was the greatest person that were born of women, you would probably 
take my opinion with a grain of salt. But this statement wasn't just made by some random Joe Schmo from the street. The one who said this of John the Baptist was Jesus Christ. Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. John was called the greatest, but the greatest at what? Now let's turn to a synoptic gospel. Uh, the harmony of the gospel is Luke, to Luke 7, which speaks of the same events here. In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, it gives a little bit more context at what John was greatest at. Luke 7, 28 says, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. There is not a greater prophet than that of John the Baptist. Now, there were many great prophets, especially in the Old Testament. Two that come to mind are Elijah and Elisha, people who have committed multiple miracles, people who were courageous to preach God's word. But among even those prophets, John the Baptist stood above them. So what did John do to garner such praise from Jesus? What was it about John that made him the greatest prophet that lived at that point? So we'll look at his life. It'll, be, it'll serve as a small character study. But before we get into the two points for tonight, let's just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you uh, fill me with your spirit, Lord, as I deliver your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me preach your message and not mine. And I pray, Lord, that you would remove this fatigue from me today, tonight. I pray this all in your name. Amen. So what made the John the Baptist great? Was it his appearance? Was it his clothing that made him stand out? No. In fact, he dressed exactly like all the Old Testament prophets or akin to them. He, he wore camel's hair. He wore a leather belt. Nothing about him was exceptional. Was it John the Baptist's diet that made him special? No. He just he didn't eat fancy food. He didn't eat from the king's court. He didn't eat manna from heaven. What did he eat? He ate locust and wild honey. Maybe John the Baptist was richer than all the Old Testament prophets, and that's what made him greater than everybody else. Nope. John didn't have any assets to his name besides the camel hair that he was wearing and maybe the locust that he stuffed down his pockets. He spent most of his life in the wilderness and in the deserts. He didn't have any riches to his name. Outwardly, there was nothing that John the Baptist had that he could have boasted about. In fact, he wasn't just average. He was, in fact, below average. Normal citizens of that time probably had better clothing than John. Normal citizens of that time probably ate better food than John. Normal citizens of that time probably lived in better homes than John. There was nothing about what he owned or what he looked like. So if John wasn't special outwardly, what made him greater than all the prophets? It must have been what he had inside, his inward character that set him apart. And that's exactly it. John's character is one that all of us ought to imitate. 
And though there are books upon books upon books that talk about John the Baptist's life, in fact, for the level of importance that he had, there's very little said about John the Baptist. There's more said about Paul. There's more said about, there's more said about Peter and maybe even some other, other apostles, but very little is said about John the Baptist. But though little is said about him, there's great lessons to be learned from his character, from his life. And he was, by the definition I gave earlier, a super man. A super Christian that stood above others of his time. And tonight we'll look at his two most significant characteristics. And his first one was his single-mindedness. John's single-mindedness. Now imagine if God declares your calling and tells your calling to your parents before you were even born. Before you were still in the womb, uh, God speaks to your parents and tells them that you are going to have this certain role in life when you grow up. That would be kind of cool. It solves a lot of problems that, a lot of struggles that teens especially have. We're always looking for what God's will is for our lives, but John didn't really have to wonder because from when he was still in the womb, God had already declared his will for John to his parents, Zacharias. In Luke 1, 15 to 17, let's turn there, a couple chapters back from where you are. Luke 1, 15 to 17, we see the angel Gabriel speaking to John's father, Zacharias, which actually broke the 400 years of silence. So Luke chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, it says, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not only did the angel Gabriel declare his birth, but Isaiah also, the Old Testament prophet, prophesied of John the Baptist. His birth, his role in life. So before he was even born, John's path was already kind of declared by Jesus, uh, by God. Now some spend their entire, entire lives wondering what God's will is for their lives, but John didn't have to wonder. His parents knew, and when he was of age, eventually his parents would tell him. Now, this is not to say that John's path, that his life was set in stone. Not at all. I'm not saying that his every action that John would take had already been predetermined by God. I don't, it's not Calvinism. Like all men, he had free will. He could have denied this calling, for all we know. He could have denied the calling that God has placed upon his life and lived however he wanted. He could have gone and done whatever he wanted to do. But what was amazing about John is he didn't. He didn't do whatever he wanted to do. In Luke 1, 80, uh, 1 verse 80, look again. It says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Now with the exception of that one statement in verse 80, nothing else is said about John. Nothing about his childhood, nothing about his teenage life, nothing about his young adulthood. Nothing else is said about John the Baptist. 
His upbringing is completely shrouded in obscurity and is completely unknown to us. But we do know three things from that verse. He grew, as naturally a child would grow. He waxed strong in spirit, and he spent his life in the desert. John, when he was of age, most likely heard uh, from his parents what God wanted for his life, to be a forerunner for the Messiah. In understanding his role in life, he felt it necessary. Again, we don't know this from Scripture because nothing else is said about him. But he may have felt that he needed to live a life of isolation. So he cut himself off from the rest of society and he lived in the deserts until he began his public ministry. So it was 30 years that he spent in the deserts by himself mostly, waxing strong in spirit. Waxing strong in spirit. Though it's not stated in Scripture, I'm sure it was during this time that he was in hiding that John was studying the Scripture. When he started preaching, he knew the Old Testament law. He knew the Old Testament writings, and this is when he started to study it, when he was in the deserts. It was during this time that he most likely absorbed in prayer, a life of prayer. In Luke 11.1, One of Jesus' disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And this is how Jesus replied. Uh, This is how it went. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. He was a man of prayer. Later on, when he would get disciples, he taught his, his own disciples to be prayer warriors. John studied the Old Testament law most likely during the deserts. He most likely absorbed uh, 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 and, and lived a life of prayer by himself. He waxed strong in spirit. And that phrase, though it's very vague, must have characterized his entire youth. He waxed strong in the spirit. He listened to the guidance of the spirit. John was single Minded. His purpose was to be the forerunner of Christ, to prepare the nation to receive the Messiah, which is a lofty task. And he knew that that role required him to grow spiritually. It, need, it required for him to grow and become mature in the faith. It may have been the fact that John could have sacrificed his entire childhood. When other kids would be playing, he would be reading the law. When other teenagers would be socializing, he may have been praying in the desert by himself. Again, we don't know. He may have sacrificed all the fun in the world in order to speak to God, to spend time with God, alone in the deserts and wilderness. Alone, he continued to labor silently. He continued to grow spiritually until it was time for him to start his ministry. And his single-mindedness continued into the start of his public ministry. He he was focused into that goal of his. He faithfully performed his duty as the forerunner of Christ till the day he died. Even when opposition came, and the opposition of that time was primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the spiritual and religious leaders of that day who controlled basically what everybody should believe and how everybody should practice. There were two of the three major sects of of Israel at that time. 
Even when those opposers came to watch him preach, he still continued to courageously preach the, God, uh, preach the truth. He didn't change his message. He didn't compromise. He didn't alter his message in order to gain the approval of the Pharisees and the scribes. No. Instead, he looked at the, the Pharisees and scribes and he rebuked them. In Matthew 3, 7-10, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. The spiritual leaders of that day have led the nation astray. They have been dependent on their works, their sacrifices. They made people depend on, on their lineage as Israelites, that they were descendants of Abraham for salvation. They depended on all of those things rather than placing their faith in the coming Messiah. Hence why John looked at them and called them a generation of vipers, a deceitful bunch akin to the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. Do you think it was easy to just rebuke the leaders of that day? Do you think it was easy to just wake up and, and see the Pharisees and Sadducees just out there, maybe had a, a criticizing look to them? Do you think it was easy to just point them out and rebuke them in publicly where everybody else was listening? That required a great deal of courage. Not everybody could have done what John did. But it, it was because John was so single-minded in his role as the forerunner of Christ that he was willing to even muster the courage to defy the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not even just the Pharisees. He went even further. John the Baptist even had the courage to rebuke Herod of his sin. Now, if you're not familiar with who Herod is, this Herod, this particular Herod, was the son of Herod the Great, the king of Judea. But Herod the Great, when he died, he gave the, the throne, you could say, to his three, uh, three children, Philip, uh, Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, and Herod Antipas. And this Herod Antipas was the one that I'm talking about. But he rebuked Herod, who was essentially the king of Judea, for his sin. In his commitment to preach the truth, John was willing to rebuke even the king for his sin. Do you see how single-minded John the Baptist was? He knew his goal to prepare the nation for the Messiah. And he didn't let any opposition stop him from preaching. In fact, Herod couldn't do anything to John. Actually, a correction, he wouldn't do anything to John. Because even though he was rebuked of John, he respected him. Mark 6, 20, it said, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Herod actually liked listening to John the Baptist. Even the enemies of John knew that he was a holy man. And it was only because of his wife's deceit that Herod was forced to behead John the Baptist. Now back to John. Because of his single-mindedness and his focus on God's will for his life, John was an exceptional prayer warrior. 
He was a bold preacher, zealous, courageous, willing to speak up to the opposition. He was a courageous rebuker of the sinful and the unjust of that time. And it all rooted from his single-mindedness and his willingness to fulfill God's will. Now I ask this, are you as single-minded as John? God may have given you a task to do, but have you fully devoted yourself to performing said task? John, he gave his entire life. In fact, he dedicated the entirety of his life from the day one to the day he died, he dedicated his life to fulfilling God's will, to doing God's will as the forerunner of Christ. Not once in Scripture do we see him turn aside. Not once in Scripture do we read that he desired and, and wanted to do his own thing. But all that we know and all that we read about John the Baptist is that we see that he is completely focused on doing the Lord's work. He was single-minded, focused. Some, may, some here today may be called to full-time ministry, others to another secular job, or whatever, whatever it is God's will is for your life. But are you doing everything you can, devoting all of your being to following God's will? Are you as single-minded as John? But his second attribute, and I think it's the greater of the two, and what really permeated his whole ministry was this second attribute, and it's this. Attribute number two is his humility. His humility. John the Baptist spent most of his childhood, again, in obscurity. No one knew who he was. But the moment he began preaching, the moment he began his public ministry, he took the world by storm. His public ministry was the exact opposite of his training years. The moment he began to preach, the moment he began to baptize, flocks of people started to go to the Jordan River and listen to John the Baptist. This was incredibly impressive because John wasn't preaching in Jerusalem, the spiritual, the, the hub of anything spiritual. He wasn't preaching at a bustling town. He was preaching in the, in the River Jordan, in the wilderness, in the desert. Yet people still flocked towards John the Baptist. Now many flocked and went to him for different reasons. Some were eagerly awaiting news of the Messiah, and they were actually eager to learn. Some were curious as to who John was and what he was talking about. And others probably came to criticize and judge, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But nevertheless, John was famous. Not only was he famous, he was renowned throughout the entirety of Israel when he began his preaching. And his message, combined with his zeal, he made great crowds repent of their sins and to believe in the coming Messiah. Some even became his disciples and followers. And two of his disciples would later on become Jesus' disciples, which is John and Andrew. His presence was so great that some Jews began wondering within themselves, is John the Baptist the Messiah? You preach about the Messiah, but is there a possibility that you yourself 
of the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Maybe you're the Messiah that we have been eagerly waiting and watching for. This was a great compliment, you could say. In Luke 3.15, it says, And as the people were in their expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. Many people, if they were put into the same position that John was in at this time, would have let the Jews' response get to their heads and puff up their egos. They would have tried stealing the spotlight. But John was a cut above others. He was a humble man. And again, heralding back to his single-mindedness, his mind was stayed on his true role to be a forerunner of the Messiah. And his humility is evident in his response. Luke 3.16, turn with me there. Luke 3.16. And it says, John answered, again, to the, respo- to the, the, the response of the people thinking he was the Messiah. But John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. John didn't want the attention towards himself. He wanted that attention towards Jesus, the Messiah. And instead of accepting the people's compliments, you could say, he chose instead to declare the excellence and might of Jesus Christ, of the coming Messiah. He even says that he is not worthy of unloosing Jesus' shoes. Now that act of unloosing someone's shoes was reserved for a hired servant. It was reserved for a slave even, if you had any. So John, in essence, was saying that he was not even worthy of being Jesus' servant. He knows that everything that he is, that everything that he accomplishes, that everything that he does It's not because he was great of himself. It was because of God. Later on, another issue arises within his disciples. And they start questioning why Jesus was also baptizing. Why Jesus was doing the exact same ministry as John. And they started questioning John, why is he doing your ministry? What you were responsible for. And to respond to his disciples' question, he gives a statement that, in my opinion, is the greatest verse in the entire Bible on humility. John 3, 29-30, the last passage we'll turn to. John 3, 29-30. Which says, Ye yourselves bear me witness, that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. And I want everyone to read this last line with me out loud together. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
From his childhood, he knew that he was the forerunner of Jesus. He knew he wasn't the Messiah. He knew he was the forerunner to the Messiah. To prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. And with the start of Jesus' public ministry, John knew that Jesus must increase and that he had to, I guess, be removed from the spotlight. Because again, at that time, he was the most popular person there. He was more renowned than Jesus himself at at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But he understood that his role wasn't to, his role wasn't the Messiah, his role was the forerunner. His role was finished. He prepared the people's hearts for, to receive the Messiah. He didn't get jealous. He didn't get bitter. But he knew that his entire life, everything that he devoted himself to was for this moment, to point others to Jesus. And now that the Messiah is here, he was more than glad. He was overjoyed to make himself decrease. I think for myself, the greatest challenge in my life is living out this one statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I'm sure everyone here can say the exact same thing, that the hardest part about life is making ourselves no longer in the spotlight, but putting God in His proper place to point others to Christ rather than to point the attention to ourselves. How many times do we let our own selves take the the center stage and we put God in the back burner? Sometimes when we're at our workplaces or we're we're at school, no no one even knows that we're Christians. They know us by our names, and they may know what we are interested in, what hobbies we have, but they don't even know that we're Christians because we have made God, we we have put Him in the back burner. We decrease God and increase ourselves which is completely contrary to John's definition of humility here. He must increase, but I must decrease. Imagine if you attended a wedding, and instead of the bride or the the groom, the people getting married, instead of those two individuals getting all the attention, imagine it was one of the groomsmen. Imagine there was a groomsman that demanded that he be the first one in line. Imagine if there was a groomsman that wanted to be front and center of all the pictures taken. Imagine there was a groomsman that demanded that he would be the one to cut the cake and receive the first slice. Imagine if there was a groomsman that demanded that he was who he would be the one to throw the bouquet. Imagine that there was a groomsman that demanded to be right beside the pastor as he was saying the vows, along with the bride and the groom. How would you react? Not only would you think that this guy was being a moron, but you would find it incredibly odd, right? This wasn't the groomsman's special day. He was a groomsman, not the bride or the groom. But he was acting like all the attention was supposed to be for him. That isn't his place. Maybe if he has his own wedding, he can act like that. But not in someone else's wedding. He was not the point of attention. Similarly, a lot of us are acting like that groomsman in how we operate in our lives. We're always pointing, me, 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 me. Even though the one who ought to get the attention is God. John understood his role. He wanted everyone to give attention not to himself, 
but to Jesus? Are we trying to steal the show tonight? Are we trying to steal the spotlight away from who it's meant for, God? How much of what we do is actually trying to point others to Jesus? And how much of what we do is actually just pointing the attention towards ourselves? And I dare say that probably most people, most people, including myself, a lot of what we do is for the purpose of pointing attention towards ourselves rather than pointing it towards God. On earth, I believe that no man can truly claim that he or she is perfectly humble. I don't think anybody will be able to achieve that within in their lifetime here on earth. For all of us here today, it will be a lifetime tug of war between pride and humility, between choosing to uplift self and between choosing to uplift God. But though no man can be perfectly humble, all of us here today can choose to pursue humility. A life where we uplift God and uplift others and we place ourselves at the bottom where we ought to be. So what can we learn from the Superman of Scriptures? How can we be super Christians ourselves? First, be single-minded and focused towards accomplishing what God wants for your life. And secondly, to pursue humility and to uplift God rather than ourselves. Humility and single-mindedness, those two attributes aren't flashy. But being a super Christian is not about being flashy. It's not about how well you can preach. It's not about how well you can sing in the, uh, in the stage. It's not about how good you are at debating theology with another individual. It's not about how well you can destroy the argument of an atheist or of an agnostic. It's not about how much you've tithed in your life. That's not what a super Christian is. Super Christians are not products of outward works, of outward performances, but it is a product of internal transformation wrought by the Spirit. And I say this because I believe everyone here has the potential to be a super Christian, to be like John the Baptist. John the Baptist, there was nothing about him that made him completely, that, that we can't achieve. We can also have single we, though we are not forerunners of Christ, we also have the responsibility of pointing others to Christ. We share that similarity, and all of us here can be single-minded and humble. All of us here have that opportunity but only a few will actually ever take it. Hence why these individuals are referred to as super. I'll ask you this today. Do you yourself want to be a super Christian like John the Baptist? Or are you content being just another average Joe? Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word. Thank you.